0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 52. I'm really excited about today's show. I've been uh, looking forward to speaking with this person for a couple of weeks now, really since I finished up his excellent book, which I'm only teasing now because you're going to have to wait through my song and dance for Counterpunch to hear who I'm talking to. Uh, so, Counterpunch, very important these days in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I I look at all of the different issues and all of the you know the the hoopla around Trump or uh, previously around Sanders and do we or don't we get you know uh, beaten over the head by the Hillary club do we succumb to the Hillary poison the lesser evil all that stuff these are all conversations that need to take place and in my view there are very few places out there on the left that are truly providing a space for that kind of discourse for divergent opinions for incisive critical analysis I mean, we have right now uh, the vice presidential candidate for the Green Party is a regular contributor to Counterpunch and also a friend of mine. I feel really um, uh, thrilled to be able to say that Counterpunch is producing what, in my view, is the best content ever anywhere on the on the left as far as web presence and as far as print magazine. And that's a great way to contribute to Counterpunch to help keep the project going. I mean, really, how many places really produce a print publication anymore? Very, very few and increasingly few each day. Counterpunch is still doing it. I, I commend the, the hard work that Josh and Jeff and all of the Counterpunch team does in putting that together. I think if you have the opportunity, you should get that subscription. But of course, you can help us out here on the show by giving us a positive review on iTunes, spread the word about Counterpunch Radio to your friends by email through your Twitter or whatever, whatever your favorite method is. We just want to bring this show to as many people as possible. Think about it. There are no ads. There's not really very much self-promotion other than the stuff I do in the beginning. And that's about it. And the rest of it is just conversations on critical subjects. So I really value that. Sort of stuff all over the place. I hope you value uh, the contribution that Counterpunch Radio is making. Anyway, let me turn to my guest this week. I'm really happy to be able to welcome uh, Nicholas Scow onto the program. Uh, Nick is an author, he is the author of the absolutely essential book, Kill the Messenger, how the CIA's crack cocaine controversy destroyed journalist Gary Webb. Uh, of course, if you do know that story, you're probably familiar with the fact that it was an excellent movie that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, so very, very important story there. And Nick is here to talk about his new book, what, in my view, is an absolute must read for this year, Spooked, how the CIA manipulates the media and hoodwinks Hollywood, what What an important subject. I'm so happy to welcome Nick to the program. Nick, welcome to Counterpunch Radio.
1: Thanks, Eric. Great to be here.
0: So we have so much to talk about, and I, I really want to kind of begin, although I hate when interviews with authors begin with, well, give us an overview of the book, I do think it's important to ground people in the, the narrative that you're bringing forward here, because there might be some people who know a lot about it, there might be some people who don't know that much. Tell us in general, what is the overall argument of the book? What are you telling us about the CIA and its relationship with media?
1: Well, a lot of people are under the impression that the CIA either directly controls the news media somehow or that the media is an aggressive independent force in a, you know, functioning democracy. And really both of those are, are not true. What the book tries to do is update the real story uh, from where it sort of was last really left off, which was in the Watergate era when Carl Bernstein published an article in 1977 for Rolling Stone magazine. He exposed the CIA's you know, direct control over the news media and how this had been finally brought to light. And really, since then, no one's taken a really close, hard look at exactly how the CIA interacts with the press and to what extent it still is able to control stories that the press uh, is trying to uh, pick up and put out there. And so Um, In talking to a lot of national security reporters and talking to former CIA officials uh, and in visiting Langley itself, I was able to get a lot of really interesting insight into how, uh, despite the fact that the CIA doesn't directly pay people anymore in the media, it doesn't really have to. The media is effectively doing this job now for free. And that's the basic argument of the book.
0: Yeah, that's right. And you you kind of um – preempted a couple of my questions there but we'll come back to that. I want to I want to make this point as well because and I want to be honest, okay? When I first when the book came and I I picked it up and I looked at it and I thought to myself, well, this is going to be a fun read, but Is there really that much that I don't already know about this story? I mean, I know all about Operation Mockingbird. I know what came out in the church committee and the Pike committee and uh, all of the conversations that have happened around this. I obviously was uh, participating in the anti-war movement at the time that the media was hyping the Iraq war. So I felt personally like, I don't know that there's all that much left for me to learn. And then in reading through this book, you get into some of the really specific kind of nitty-gritty relationships and you kind of go through the different periods from the uh, immediate post-World War II period when the CIA is founded, really all the way up through today and showing this evolution with specific examples. And I personally felt like I learned a lot from it, a lot more than I thought I might.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I think you're probably one of the more educated readers for this book and I count myself in that category as well. So when I was actually given the... Opportunity to write this, I immediately thought, well, you know, what kinds of uh, you know information am I going to discover that I don't already know? And for me, you know, the really kind of uh, valuable aspect of being able to write this story now, in some ways, has a lot to do with the the, the rise of new and independent media and very aggressive independent reporters, most of whom are obviously not working for the New York Times or the Washington Post, although I did interview a few of those people, but rather for publications like uh The Intercept and uh and, and people just almost like working for themselves, like Jason Leopold, uh who uh is known by the FBI as the FOIA terrorist, who just basically they don't rely, they're not access reporters. They don't do the CIA's bidding. They don't have editors who tell them what they can report and what they can't and who sit on stories that they write. So, one where I start the book, actually, <laughs> is with some of the most eye-opening material that's very current, and it comes from a Freedom of Information Act request that The Intercept uncovered and, and repurposed into stories, which revealed how – I mean, quoting from emails between the CIA and top national security reporters that just show in all the ugly glory how these people basically tell the CIA exactly what they're working on and essentially ask for permission to publish this material and get perfunctory quotes from these press flags. But basically what they're doing is they're giving the CIA a heads up on all the you know material that they're going to put out there and giving the CIA a chance to basically control the narrative.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting about about that point too is that um, you know we're recording here on Wednesday, August third, and it just so happens today I have a piece in Counterpunch uh, entitled, I think it was uh, leaked DNC emails expose anti-Sanders conspiracy, and the WikiLeaks uh, um, documents um, that that were released of the DNC emails from Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Luis Miranda, the communications director of the DNC, and the other sort of bigwigs within the DNC. One of the aspects of that that I highlighted in my piece is the fact that the reporter from Politico, I forget his name at this moment, and the reporter from the New York Times, both of them made deals with the DNC and the Clinton campaign to make sure to give the DNC and Clinton sort of first first shot at the articles before they were published. And this is, again, what you highlight in the book, all about access. So these reporters trade away their ethics and their morality and their duty towards, you know, journalism in favor of, you know, just that much more access to the Clinton campaign and the DNC. In many ways, what we're talking about really has n- nothing to do with the CIA so much as it has to do with the nature of what it means to be corporate media.
1: Exactly. And so one really fascinating example that I that I chart in the end of the book has to do with the war on terror and how a top CIA official who really should have been fired a long time ago, how this guy's identity was protected by essentially the entire national security press. Everybody knew this guy's name, Michael Dandrea. He was in charge of the drone program. He also was one of the people in charge of the torture program. He was also one of the people that screwed up on 9-11, losing track of some of the uh, the hijackers before 9-11. And so... Only after the CIA, after there was this botched drone strike that I detail that happened um, early last year where the CIA blew up a building without really any direct evidence of, they didn't even know who was inside it, but they, based on this very loose criteria that the agency has over what they can take out with a, a drone missile, they decided to blow it up and there were two extra bodies that were pulled from the rubble. And so it took a month for the CIA to figure out that these two extra bodies were Western hostages that they had uh, lost track of. And so only after all the dust had cleared on that and this gentleman, Michael Dandre, who had basically pulled the trigger on that, was finally effectively pulled out of the war on terror did the New York Times finally write this article You know, almost just burying the lead, but mentioning this guy's real name for the first time and saying that he was responsible for this. And then I was able to sort of piece together all the previous references to him where they protected his identity. And again, it's all about access. They did that, even though there were a lot of people, there were reporters that wanted to expose him. They were never able to do it because their editors were worried about losing the access that they had.
0: Yeah, and, and again, I mean, we hear a lot about it, but this is an example of uh, when corporate media sits on a story, not because, you know, they don't think they can confirm it or because there's some journalistic reason to do it, but for very cynical political reasons, they sit on these stories. And it's part of the reason why, and you, you kind of allude to this in the book as well, it's part of the reason why so many of us who do this kind of work are, you know, relying increasingly on sources like WikiLeaks, Because we know that those journalists who in previous generations might have done the legwork to expose these things, they're not doing that. And we can cite literally hundreds of examples of them deliberately, uh, you know, avoiding their own responsibility.
1: Yeah. And so I I actually, to a certain extent, I I think part of the upshot of my book is trying to, uh, you know, shed light on some of the good work that's actually happening now. And I think that there is reason to be hopeful if for no other reason than that when i went and visited the cia and had a very interesting conversation with them mostly off the record about their efforts to try to uh, keep, as they put it keep harmful information out of the public eye they claim of course the cia does that all they're trying to do is protect not just the u.s national security but the welfare of their officers especially overseas and so forth and that's why they justify this unspoken rule that they'd be given a 24 hour heads up on any story that comes out, which again, like I was saying, pretty much all the, all the news media plays that game. But, um, they complained so much and seemed so sad about their inability to keep everything out of the press that they don't want. And they point the finger at these new independent sources of media that are, they're just not able to control like they used to be able to do. So, um, despite, My cynicism, I think, in a general sense about the the health of the U.S. news media as a whole, there's a a kind of, uh, you know, strong reason to be hopeful about newer um, independent forms of media like The Intercept, Counterpunch, obviously, you know, there's like a lot of good uh, vestiges of uh, aggressive press that are still out there and worth celebrating.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting actually a number of weeks ago when I had John Pilger on this show and one thing that he said that kind of took me, you know, I was a little bit taken aback by it, although I, I guess it's true, he would know better than I would. He he made the point that he felt that that the United States had by far the most vibrant alternative media of any place anywhere in the Western world or anywhere in the world in general and uh, I guess that was that was something else that was kind of, I don't know, I felt like was also highlighted in your book was the important work that is going on within what we might call the alternative media, even though I suppose, you know, something like The Intercept that has a billionaire financially backing it might not really be alternative, I suppose. But in general, that's the point that I was, uh, you know, getting from your book.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, that said, however, of course, the really scary thing to me that I still came away with, and which I hope readers of the book will come away with is the the fact that there is so much happening that we don't know about. I mean, it really is difficult. And so despite the intercept, despite the fact that we have Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks, and and there is like a, you know, kind of a a lot of material coming out that the CIA is obviously not able to control or that the, you know, the the presidents, the, the White House not able to control as well. There's just so much that we don't know. And so... Um, it's very easy in some ways for uh, stories to get buried or for sources to be discredited. And so that's when uh, you see this uh, tactic kick in of trying to discredit people who are providing this information but who aren't able to necessarily nail it down and who certainly are not able to get the rest of the media to kind of pick it up and help kind of demand answers. So a really interesting example of that to me in fact, would be the, uh, the case of the assassination of Osama bin Laden, where this official story that changed so many times so quickly and never really added up completely was just uh, bought hook, line, and sinker by the U.S. national security press. And then you have Seymour Hersh coming along nearly four or five years later and reporting something completely different, poking all kinds of holes in it, and instead of picking up on that and actually really trying to get to the bottom of it which has never happened and we still have no um, you know answers on a lot of the allegations that uh, that Seymour Hersh made they just uh, the press that is just focuses on Hersh and his personality and and his uh, grouchiness which yeah, is a lot easier to do
0: you know one of the things that one of the things that came to my mind when i was reading that that section about the uh, assassination of bin laden was that when that news when that news of seymour hersch's story uh came you know came, came across or when it was published um I remember just for just out of coincidence, I happened to go to the 9-11 museum uh, two days later, I think, or maybe it was the next day after Hersh's article was published, and I happened to work right next to the 9-11 memorial, and so it just so happened I was going that day uh, for a different event. And anyway, they had the uh, exhibit of bin Laden, including some artifacts from the compound, allegedly, and, you know, telling this whole story, and it was obviously, it was the Zero Dark Thirty story. It was the standard narrative about how bin laden was killed and the heroism of the uh, special forces team and so forth and uh, i asked the guide i was like you do you guys know that hirsch just published this article that completely debunks this entire story and the guide was like yeah we had a whole meeting about it but uh, our our supervisor says that they doubt anything is going to change and (laughs) my my point is that The media's responsibility, it isn't just in the realm of, like, uh, facts and understanding just for people's edification. It is also the platform through which these narratives become cemented all across the board, including in spectacles like at the museums and exhibits and all the rest of that.
1: Yeah, and so what really kind of surprised me as I dug into that story is that it's not just Seymour Hurst saying this, you know what I mean? People tend to forget that this story had actually been out there before and in fact i forgot that i had heard that there were you know reports uh, based on rumors and again this is what i'm saying like i can say based on rumors but i mean Ninety percent of what the national security press is, you know, based on rumors or it's unconfirmable. Ninety percent, ninety.
0: You're pretty generous. I'm being very generous,
1: indeed. But I mean, like uh, one one reporter, Mark Mazzetti said, "Well, they only know twenty percent of what's going on." I would I would assume it's much less than that, actually. (laughs) So that's based that's based on their own numbers. But um, you know, they just have uh, you know. So this story had been out there, and Hirsch basically just kind of came along and, like, you know, he had some very direct uh, inside sourcing on this. And when I talked to people that used to work in the CIA, they confirmed it. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a dirty secret. But yeah. uh, the thing is, is that if the if this is a story that the CIA doesn't want put out there, and if this is a story that they've already managed to sell to Hollywood, it's going to be very difficult for anybody to change that narrative after the fact. And so it's it, it, this is something that I chart with, Gary Webb, for example, earlier in the book, and um, you know, earlier in time, obviously back in the '90s, writing about a, a dark secret that the CIA had managed to keep buried until he broke it open. What always happens is that people that you know break the rules of the game in journalism and who work for papers where they're vulnerable to this type of pressure are subjected to these pressure campaigns. And are uh, discredited time and time again, so webb wasn 't the first guy that this happened to, and that 's a big theme of the book that I explore is the origin of of transitioning away from just basically paying reporters to write what the CIA wants to much more sophisticated ways of pressuring their editors and competitors into uh, into shaping the narrative
0: yeah, exactly, and i 'm going to return to that after the break. Um, But um, one thing – one other thing that I just want to bring up to kind of put a final point on this Seymour Hersh, Osama bin Laden thing is that if you recall, when when Hersh published that story, the – one of the central uh, sort of points, talking points in the media that was not willing to, you know, scrutinize the actual narrative and to really question it and to dig in further, rather, they decided to focus on the fact that Seymour Hirsch was operating with anonymous sources. And I found that really hilarious, considering the fact that if you read almost any article in The New York Times, The Washington Post or anything, it's almost always uh, entirely dependent upon anonymous sources, uh, unnamed white. White House official or unnamed person who was uh, had to speak under condition of anonymity or whatever. And so my point is that the corporate media, and we see this with the Gary Webb example, what they do is they character assassinate the journalist, the journalist who goes against the accepted narrative rather than actually taking a step back and re-examining the narratives that they themselves have been propping up.
1: Yeah, and with, with Hirsch, I mean, it was really hilarious because... the. The Washington Post again. They were the first to attack Gary Webb, and they were also the first to attack Seymour Hersh when, when his reporting came out. And all of all of that, you could tell just by reading the stories themselves that was just being fed to them by the CIA. It was all anonymous sources that were going to uh, to the Washington Post and using it as like the attack dog and carrying out this sort of discrediting campaign. And that's exactly you know that, that's a time honored tactic. It goes back before Gary Webb. One of the first people. Uh, to really be uh, uh, directly subjected to this was Robert Perry, who was a really groundbreaking uh, AP reporter during the 1980s. And uh, he uncovered some of the earliest stories on Iran-Contra, but also wrote literally with him and Brian Barger, his colleague at at, uh, AP at the time, wrote the first uh, articles licking the Nicaraguan Contras and the CIA to drug smuggling. And so he was taken aside and basically told, you know, if you continue to write stories like this, we're going to have to controversialize you. That was Robert Kagan, who is now Ah, a uh, a Washington Post columnist.
0: Another one of my questions that I was going to get to after the break, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, so... You know that that's where that's one of these moments in the book where the veil is lifted away, and you just have somebody basically owning uh, the 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 reality of what they're doing. And so this is something that usually people don't talk about, but which I was able to get some you know uh, detail about. But um, yeah, and he was basically warned, look, you know. This is the way it works. If you continue to write stories like this, we're going to have to controversialize you. Well, of course, Bob Perry took that as an indication that he was on the right track and just continued to do what he was doing. But indeed his editors were uh, put under a lot of direct pressure by the state department during the Reagan administration and, uh, and they took him off the beat, and he ended up quitting his job and transferring over to Newsweek, where it became even worse. He was even more vulnerable to this type of pressure. In fact, they just refused to cover the Iran-Contra hearings at one point, just considered this like not a worthy uh, you know, pursuit for investigative r- reporting, which is just mm-hmm. outlandishly crazy.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. Um, the other thing, the other, and by the way, Robert Perry is still producing a lot of this great stuff and still getting attacked for not 100% swallowing the narratives about Russia or about Syria or about Libya or about a number of other issues. And so a lot of the characters that really make an appearance in this book, uh, they're still very much, you know, on the scene today. And in, and in many ways, these connections uh, that go back 20, 30, 40 years, I think, are very relevant for us now as we try to navigate the media landscape.
1: Yeah, he uh, Bob Perry is someone I've known for a long time, and it's just amazing to see uh, how you know he's been able to continue. I mean, this guy. They, the thing is, is you can never really discredit somebody uh, so much as you can pressure uh, them to be silenced if you can control the people that control them. And so Perry, like a lot of other reporters, like Jason Leopold, for example, they're independent. They just they don't work for these mainstream dailies like the Washington Post or the New York Times, where you can just easily quash what they do but the problem is is that perry you know that he doesn't because he doesn't work for a big powerful newspaper He doesn't have the ability to reach the public the way say for example a james Risen would be able to do Risen being a very good very talented reporter but who happens to work for a, a pretty uh... weak need uh... institution which is the new york times and so he broke two of the most important stories since 9-11 on government uh, abuse of uh, privacy and surveillance, uh, the the NSA story, uh, and also uh, exposed a really ill-considered CIA effort to try to destabilize Iran, which backfired and actually helped speed up their nuclear program, of all things. And both of those stories never would have come out had he not had book deals where he was going to basically expose this. Uh, on his own. And so the only reason the New York Times ever agreed to publish that information was they didn't want to get scooped by their own reporter uh, in his own book.
0: Yeah, now I can I can almost hear the just barely audible screams of some people. And I will address that by saying, yes, we know that Jason Leopold is, you know, works for Vice. We know Vice is in bed with News Corp. We know that The Intercept is in bed with Omidyar and all that money. We know that the difference between corporate media, semi-corporate media, totally alternative media. I want to make that distinction before I get all this emails about that. But the point is people like Leopold, people, uh, you know, uh, similar to that who are working outside of the major mainstream publications, they do have a level of independence that you don't have with, say, the Washington Post, which famously has been known as the house organ of the CIA, not for, you know, uh, for, for, for many decades now.
1: Yeah, that's a big through line in the book is the evolution of that relationship. And what's really striking about it is that even though the Washington Post has changed owners and it's not this sort of um, country club, you know, collegiality relationship that they used to have. Now you have uh, Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, owning the paper, but he actually provides IT services for the CIA. So the relationship's even more nefarious now when you think about it. But just to address your other point about about the intercept and the ownership of all the media, I mean, one of the people who I talked to and I wasn't able to use as much of the information in the book as I would have liked just because the focus of it uh, was very narrowly kept on the media itself and and just the the relationship between the media and the CIA, for example, was Noam Chomsky. And, I mean, you just have to remember the media – Uh, You know, you have to be able to always understand the relationship between the ownership of the media and what it does and what its function is. And the corporate media's relationship is unchanged, you know, even within the context of The Intercept and so forth. This is stuff where it's controlled by very powerful people whose relationships, uh, both political and economic, you know, are really... Um, you know, every part and parcel of, 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 of what they do, and you have to keep that stuff in mind. So it's, it's good to not brush that aside.
0: Yeah, I think it's important because I, look, I read The Intercept, I read Jason Leopold and and whatever. I, I, I follow these people, but I also know in the back of my mind the sort of, I guess we could call it the gradations of independence within the media landscape and people like that who have produced great work, who are connected to organizations that are backed by people that I wouldn't trust with anything, but... They are still producing good work, and I think that's important to recognize. Um, anyway, I just wanted to sort of address that point before we went to break. Let's, let's take a quick break, and, uh, we'll pick up the conversation right there. I want to talk a little bit about a couple of people who make an appearance in the book that I think people want to know about. So, uh, we'll be right back. I'll continue the conversation with Nick Scow. Again, the book, absolute must read, spooked, How the CIA Manipulates the Media and Hoodwinks Hollywood. Very important book. We will be right back. Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Nick Scow. Again, the book Spooked How the CIA Manipulates the Media and Hoodwinks Hollywood. Uh, I would say it, it really should be on your must read list for 2016. Um, it's, look, it's a very quick read. Uh, it's not, you know, it, it's not like a thousand pages long with a million different citations. It's very readable, uh, quick. Fun read, really interesting, and I promise you'll learn a lot. Great book. Anyway, Nick, um, I want to ask you about a particular individual who comes up many times in the book and in many ways is, I think, one of the cornerstones of the narrative here, and that's a guy by the name of Frank Snapp. And um, I'd like to ask you a little bit, if you could just introduce him a little bit for listeners and kind of explain who he was, what he did, and why he's important for the development of this whole story.
1: Well, Frank Snepp was a CIA officer whose job was to brief the news media in South Vietnam from 1969 to 1975. So his claim to fame in some ways was the fact that he was on the ground uh, when the U.S. evacuated Saigon and uh, wrote a book just based on his own experience and dismay at what happened uh, called A Decent Interval. So. He um, is somebody that um, is very frank, uh, given his first name, that's kind of ironic, very honest about (laughs) what the CIA's job was uh, in Vietnam. So there was a lot of stuff, actually, that I talked to him about that I was fascinated with that didn't even go into the book. He was involved with interrogating prisoners. He was involved with Operation Phoenix. He described, uh, you know, trying to save uh, people that were being tortured to death effectively, um, by intervening, uh, in their, in those interrogations, he's someone that's been very scarred by his, uh, time with the CIA. But one of the, you know, the easier part of his job, I guess, in some ways was basically just lying to the press. And he's very upfront about that's what they did. So he shared a really interesting example with me that says a lot about the way the CIA operated and still does. It's something that, that, uh, is, uh, I'm sure still being, uh, used today, but it's basically telling uh, telling reporters half the truth so they would talk to the press uh, every time congressional funding came up for the war effort and they would share numbers about the numbers of uh, North Vietnamese infiltrators that were coming into South Vietnam from Cambodia and Laos and say, look at all these tens of thousands of troops that we're seeing coming down here. we need to fight these guys we need more money. But what they weren't sharing with the news media was the numbers of people that they were killing in that area, which was effectively the same number. So we were killing as many people as were coming in. And the North Vietnamese, of course, were always sending more people. But this was just one example of how he would put uh, fiction out there for the news media to, di- to digest. He also talked about writing editorials um, about the war that were basically printed verbatim in uh, publications like The Economist. And that's really interesting to me because although the CIA has been banned from directly planting stories in the U.S. media, which, again, as my book explores, they don't really need to do because they can get it done for free, but they, they can still plant stories and control reporters abroad. And so those articles can be published in foreign publications, and then the U.S. news media will, will pick them up as well.
0: Yeah, indeed, and I guess the reason I brought up Frank Snepp is because, you know, as you're reading through the book, it's almost like, um and, and you're reading about some of the tactics and some of what he would do in terms of, you know, uh, media manipulation, perception management, things like that, and then you translate that, you know, uh, 30 years, I guess, into the future, and you see the lead-up to the Iraq War, and it's almost like, you know, what Snepp was doing with the CIA in 1969 to 1975 was really the, the blueprint or the template for the kind of media manipulation that we saw in the early part of last decade and leading up to the Iraq war.
1: Yeah, the really, you know, the, the really kind of strange thing about the uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, fiasco, for example, is the fact that the CIA got so good at this that it just sort of lost track of the possible consequences for itself. And so it was generating really shady intelligence and faulty intelligence, just because it's really good at doing that. It's good at, you know, it's it's taking its orders from whatever administrations in power to a certain extent and being told, you know, we need reports on this question or that question. And so all this all this bogus intelligence linking Saddam Hussein to weapons of mass destruction and to various uh, Al Qaeda terrorists, for example, and various plots was put out there by the CIA, but. It wasn't leaked by them the way it was when Snep was uh, working for the agency, but it was leaked by the Bush administration. So then a very strange thing happened where the CIA, or at least certain people within the CIA, had to try to work their own networks of influence with, uh, with news uh, editors and, uh, and reporters to try to counteract their own faulty reports. So it was just a total mess, obviously too little, too late to alter the outcome.
0: Yeah and again you know when I'm when I'm thinking about uh you know the trajectory of all of these things to me it's it's so striking because Look, we know, and you highlight this in the book, that we did have a brief period in the post-Watergate era where we really did have some oppositional, uh, dare I say, you know, defiant news media when it came to the CIA, public confidence in the CIA and intelligence in general was at an all-time low. We had the Church Committee, the Pike Committee, all of this information coming out about CIA assassinations all over the world, about, you know, all of the sort of manipulation and everything else, and including in Hollywood where we saw movies that actually really cast the CIA as villains, as, you know, these uh, operators in the shadows not to be trusted, not guardians of our freedoms or whatever crap they push today. And you kind of, you note in the book just how brief that period really was. I mean, we're talking just like five years or so where we really saw, or eight years, I guess you could say, where we really saw that kind of a relationship. The rest of the time from 1950 to today has been pretty much dominated by intelligence and its incestuous relationship with the media.
1: Yeah, and I well, and you mentioned Hollywood. Hollywood was like, you know, that's the biggest kind of uncredited victory for the CIA that I think you can point to when you get right down to it since Watergate is the fact that they've managed to turn around this really terrible relationship that they obviously had. Um, And everybody's familiar with the, you know, to the extent people have an image in their mind of, you know, of the CIA being nefarious and that has any sort of visual imagery accompanied with it. You can you can thank Hollywood and its glory days for helping to create that, you know, the whole all the the movies of the 1970s and a few from the early 80s, uh, even movies like um, uh, Salvador, for example, in the 1980s. But that so quickly changed. Uh, it, during the Reagan kind of counter revolution, the cultural counter revolution that took place, and um, and it was specifically the Tom Clancy franchise that really kickstarted this. Uh, that and, and again, we're not just talking about movies that are portraying CIA agents in sort of a heroic light, but we're talking about the CIA deliberately uh, rekindling its direct working relationship that it had with Hollywood that became fractured during the 1970s, but which was very strong from its inception up through, um, you know, the Vietnam era, for example. But, you know, the CIA used to have uh, agents working inside every major Hollywood studio, which is something most people don't realize, but they were actually taking, uh, for example, uh, scripts like Animal House, uh, which had a very anti-capitalist message fundamentally, uh, even though it's commonly viewed as sort of a warning, about stalinism it was still kind of a pro-socialist um uh script until the cia got its hands on it and completely changed it around same thing with the quiet american uh where the hero who's a very skeptical anti-american anti-colonialist british journalist is turned into the villain when when hollywood and the cia <laughs> attach itself to that script so this is something that in the 1980s again happened where the cia was able to start working directly with uh hollywood uh producers and directors to try to get favorable coverage and it was really during the clinton era when that really became corporatized and you had um chase brandon who was a a, a cia officer working directly with hollywood and courting um you know relationships that turned out to be very favorable for the cia especially after 9-11 when it's just become uh overwhelmingly um, successful, the CIA's ability to kind of guide uh, reliably um, pro-agency scripts into development.
0: Yeah, there's two things I want to say to that too. Number one is the fact that um, I think that there's a lot to be said for the – the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early part of the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s that I think helped to rekindle a lot of this because the CIA was, in, in, in some sense, like the rest of the military-industrial complex, in a, in a transitional phase, in a rebranding, you know, to use the public relations term, phase where it's no longer the war against the Soviet Union, it's the war against something else, some other external threat, and it's Harrison Ford and Patriot Games or Clear and present danger or whatever you know you you see this transformation of the CIA into the guardians of the u s against whatever the external threat might be
1: yeah, and obviously nine eleven just completely opened the floodgates for yep. the uh, for the fear factory, as one might call it, and uh, Hollywood has been uh, very essential in trying to keep the American public in a permanent uh, state of fear, uh, and so whether we 're talking about programs like twenty four which has got to be probably the most psychologically manipulative um, pro CIA propaganda ever put out there, Wait, you mean got... it 's
0: not okay to torture somebody because a bomb 's going to explode in ten seconds <laughs> <Yeah>. i mean
1: <laughs> if you just look at the i mean it is hard to, i mean clearly the behavior of Jack Bauer, for example, is just so over the top it 's almost kind of comical, but I mean the it, that sort of set into motion this template that we have to have guys like him that are willing to sort of break the rules in order to be protected from, you know, everybody yeah. dying, yeah. you know, in some sort of terrible conflagration. But obviously, you know, as the years have gone by and as uh, people have again, I think that, the, you know, because of the war in Iraq and because of all the disastrous um, decisions that have been made in the war on terror, the American public is obviously more skeptical. So now you have predictably programming like Showtime, which is still very pro-CIA, but it's much more sophisticated because now you have uh, a character who's mentally ill, is <laughs>
0: bipolar. We're talking about the show Homeland.
1: Homeland, right? Where. Uh, Where Carrie Matheson, the the lead character, you know, she, by all rights, the CIA should be freaking out and and throwing a fit over the depiction of one of their officers rising through the ranks of the agency behaving like this. But, of course, they're delighted because she's a much more sympathetic, much more vulnerable type of character. But, again, the underlying message is we need people that crazy, that kind of uh, passionate about their, you know – willingness to risk everything to defend the American people in order to protect us from the terrorists, which again, just like in 24 are, you know, depicted in a kind of really black and white, good versus evil type of way.
0: Well, and one of the other things that comes up in in all of these sort of propagandistic uh, Hollywood projects is that the characters are not just sympathetic, but they're morally conflicted. That's one of the critical elements I see you know, in all of these, is that these characters are desperately trying to do the right thing. They're always, they want to do the right thing, they want to do the moral thing, but they're divided between their responsibilities responsibility to protect America and their, you know, morality or whatever to do something they know is immoral. That sort of really fake kind of manufactured dichotomy or, or conflict, I think, is, is probably one of the most manipulative aspects of what the CIA does in Hollywood today.
1: Yeah. And again, sophisticated is the key word. These are much sort of more ambiguous projects. And so they tend to be much more critically well-received and more effective in that sense. And a big part of that, that I chart in the book, and I think to a certain extent, one of the more groundbreaking aspects of the book is that I was able to talk candidly with uh, CIA officers who are now working as consultants with these types of programs and projects. So they, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that the extent to which the programming that they see now seems really sophisticated and realistic, it's because the CIA is providing these consultants to Hollywood and to TV shows that like Homeland, for example, that are, uh, you know, they basically bring in the producers and directors of these movies and TV shows to Langley. They give them the red carpet treatment. Yep. Um, and it was really funny talking to John Kiriakou who's now no longer with the CIA, but when he was there, he would be walking through the hallways and you would see like, uh, you know um, Ben Affleck, for example, or uh, uh, Robert De Niro, just walking around like they, you know, like they worked there. And he said that there were undercover uh, officers that had to like hide their faces in their coats. You know, like like what the hell's going on? So it's kind of comical on a certain level, but.
0: Well, it it is. And I think it again, it illustrates sort of the incestuousness of this relationship, because you can see how this goes. You know, uh, uh, a CIA guy who gets out of the agency, but who gets thrown a lucrative gig working with some Hollywood studio or some Hollywood people, he gets to to get his picture taken with all the biggest celebrities. He's happy about it. The celebrities are happy about it because they get access to how this whole thing operates. It's sort of, you know, you can see some some jerk in the CIA sitting there going, it's a win-win for everybody
1: (laughs) (laughs) well and the biggest win-win for everybody that i can think of um it would be argo for example i mean
0: i was gonna say that
1: yeah yep just in terms of box office alone and and also just in terms of the you know the way that you know you have projects like zero dark 30 which that we already mentioned that that do a great job for the cia of getting their own narrative out there but not everybody necessarily buys into it but here it's like everybody knows that Argo was heavily fictionalized. There's not even an issue of that, but what's so wonderfully uniquely terrible about that movie is the way that both the CIA and Hollywood itself get to be like the good guys, get to be the heroes of the story. And It's just complete nonsense.
0: Well, and the other thing that I'll that I'll say, and I don't want to get too deep into this because it's sort of a little bit outside of the scope of your book, but you have certain individuals who are all, who are constantly popping up uh, in sort of weirdly, you know, direct or tangential relations with the CIA. Uh, people like Ben Affleck and George Clooney and Angelina Jolie have done a number of projects that have been directly are indirectly connected to U.S. intelligence, including a lot of the work that they do in Africa under the auspices of charity work. And, you know, so the sort of these relations there, it's not only even what you see on the surface, it's many layers deep.
1: Yeah, well, Affleck in particular, you know, he inherited the Tom Clancy franchise from Harrison Ford. And so that's where his relationship with the CIA seems to have started. But then, his now ex-wife Jennifer Garner was the star of Alias, which was a, a show uh, depicting a CIA officer. And, and uh, the CIA was so happy with her that it actually used her to do a uh, like a public service announcement for the CIA. Oh, that's cute. Yep. And so that was the bridge, I think, to his ability to get the CIA's cooperation on making Argo.
0: Well, and which and, he usually yes.
1: rewarded them for.
0: Right, exactly. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But the other, you know, that then raises the question for me, for example, well, okay, so Affleck is in bed with the CIA, has been for a while, been working with them on a couple of different projects. So then shouldn't we be asking a little bit about what exactly his activities are in the Congo, why he's uh, testifying before Congress about things going on in the Congo, who he's connected to in the fundraising apparatus there? I mean, there's a lot of questions that I think real investigative journalists should be asking that I think your book really opens up a number of avenues for investigation.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, um, there is so there's so many, uh, you know, kind of loose ends to all that, that I wasn't able to explore all of them, for example. But you're right. I mean, um, just, you know, the notion to me, though, that I think is most important to keep in mind is the fact that Hollywood is really kind of um, become sort of an end run around this. uh tendency that I was mentioning earlier, the CIA having a little bit less direct ability to control the media than they used to because of the rise of, of more independent media. I mean, people that really follow the news closely, people, for example, that are going to be listening to this, the Recounter Punch, you know, this isn't news to them necessarily. But most of the American public probably is, is more affected by the, way, by the entertainment that they um, consume and by anything else. And the CIA knows this. And so um, it's able to, uh, to, by and large, to kind of get its narrative out there and build support and buy leeway for itself and political capital uh, through this direct relationship with Hollywood. And they don't necessarily, it's not as urgent for them to be able to control the traditional press in that um, in that rubric anymore.
0: Yeah, and, I, and matter of fact, one of the other things that came up as I was reading the book was that I feel like for the CIA, they don't even necessarily have to love everything that Hollywood puts out there. One of the things that you wrote about was that, I, if I remember correctly, you know that some of the people you talked to said how the agency is not exactly in love with the Born uh, the Born trilogy or the the Born series of movies, but even still, even with a character who's sometimes sympathetic, sometimes not with a dubious uh, uh, you know, d- uh, illustration of what the CIA is, even that has a tendency to sort of seed the public consciousness with a particular perception of the CIA, rightly or wrongly, that they're there and that there are good people there who even when they break the rules, they're doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And I also think this. I, there's been a lot of comments on articles that have come out, like, for example, Hollywood Reporter did, Uh, a story on my book and there were a lot of people reading that that commented, well, you know, and even the journalists brought this up. It's like, well, there's still so much, you know, negative portrayals of the CIA out there. Like how can you ignore like the Bourne uh, series where they're the villains and what about, um, you know, all these other projects and everything that they mentioned, it's so over the top that it's really like I brought this stuff up with the CIA and they just find all that laughable because it's not like in the 1970s where you're very kind of realistic, to a certain extent, yeah, yeah. it was like real world stuff. Like yeah. what they were describing, what they were depicting wasn't really that far off the mark. It's much different when you have like the impossible mission force as depicted in the most recent, um, uh, mission impossible movie where you have like the CIA effectively like being, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? uh, unable to contain a a rogue element within it that's actually saving us from the the war. I mean, (laughs) that's so ridiculous that it's... I mean, it's not really in any danger of harming the CIA because it's so obviously um,
0: farcical. That's right, And, and it has the opposite effect, too. It's like, you know... It's almost like the more the the more the CIA is depicted negatively, the more sort of uh, enticing it is for people who see themselves as adventure seekers, people who see themselves as kind of like rebels or, you know, outside of the mainstream or whatever they look at and they, they, you know, whether consciously or unconsciously is like, yeah, I'm like Jason Bourne. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, which is which is stupid, but I mean, that's the reality and it's sort of like, you know, it, it, one of the thing that came up in my mind as I was reading the book is sort of this this distinction that gets very blurred between misinformation and disinformation, and I think that the CIA is really kind of walking both sides of that line, sort of utilizing each when appropriate.
1: Yep, well, um it's funny. I mean, one of the people who I talked to about Hollywood was Bob Baer. And, you know, he he wrote a book that was so, I think, uh, frank about what the CIA actually does. And like it, it really, if you read that book carefully, it, it makes the CIA look really, um, <laughs> really irresponsible. And apparently, like his book has actually been banned at Langley just because um People don't want folks to read that and get the idea that they can be like an action movie star, you know, and join the CIA and then spin their uh, their CIA career into the type of uh, uh, shenanigans that uh, that Bob Bear has been able to pull off. He's, He's quite an interesting character.
0: One of the other things that uh, came up, and you mentioned it in the first part of our conversation, but I want to highlight it, is um, you mentioned Robert Kagan, and Robert Kagan was working with the Office of Public Diplomacy in the Reagan administration, and he was the one who kind of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, threatened or pressured Bob Perry uh, around the Iran-Contra scandal. But Robert Kagan has become probably the single most influential and most important neocon ideologue uh, in the last 30 years of the entire neocon movement. And so it's it's fascinating to see how somebody who ki- whose kind of beginnings start with this perception management, public relations, media manipulation world is actually grows into being the central neocon uh, leader and ideologue. And I think that speaks volumes to the kind of people who are chosen for this sort of media outreach work.
1: I agree, and so I mean the perception management. I mean that that represented a real innovation in um, in propaganda, and the CIA developed it. I mean it was run out of the State Department. Kagan was one of the people working on it, but it was it was started by a CIA officer that was shifted, basically forced to retire from the CIA, and shifted over to the State Department to kind of create a psychological warfare wing uh, under the guise of uh, of public policy, and um, and so this. You know, I go through in the book like charting out how they would come up with tactics to try to sway the American public by um, demographically geared reporting. So, for example, with the war in Central America, you had stories about the Sandinistas being anti-Catholic that were geared at the Catholic uh, press. You had stories trying to claim that the uh, Junta... In uh, Managua was, you know, made up of anti-Semites, and this was geared at, like, the Jewish American public. So all those, uh, you know, instead of just trying to directly plant stories with specific reporters, you would have press releases that were written up by the State Department and then farmed out to the news media. And this is, like, basically part and parcel of, um, you know, it's something that a whole other book, I'm sure other books have been written about it, but it's basically, you know, public relations on a very grand scale and guys like Kagan, are, I mean, just just look at the media now. Even without even thinking about the CIA, for example, but just the way um, the way the media is like just a huge echo chamber uh, for uh, for really um, nefarious opinion, guised as fact, that then is just sort of turned into fact by being repeated so many different times, and just the way people are led to kind of. Believe things that are uh, just surely it's it's so calculated. It's hard to really overstate.
0: Well, and a, and, a, and a contemporary uh, example of exactly that same thing that you were talking about with Central America in the 1980s would be the the absolutely despicable uh, line that has been put forward by a number of agencies and a number of groups. That oh well you know the U S the U S needs to continue occupying Afghanistan to make sure that girls get to go to school. You know, it's this its this bizarre sort of justification of foreign policy, justification of war under the auspices of what? Identity politics, under the auspices of feminism, under the auspices of God knows what. It's again, it's that focus on demographics in order to justify what is increasingly, every day that goes by, an increasingly unjustifiable war.
1: Right. And again, the CIA isn't really playing any direct role in this. It helped kind of come up with the formula for it. But now it's something that's really achieved a life of its own. And so, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, to, to the extent the media is manipulating people nowadays, it's mostly just by virtue of of telling people what they already kind of want to know and just reinforcing things that they already believe and um, and building support for clearly, you know, anti-democratic and unpopular and unsupportable uh, action, uh, on the basis of, uh, of feeding people. Uh, opinions that they think they already have.
0: Well, and one of the other things that they've managed to do is they've managed to create intermediaries. So where the CIA might not necessarily be giving the direct information to, you know, the the LA Times or whatever, the CIA may have connections to influential people in the NGOs that are going to then produce the -the on-the-ground reports that slant what's happening in a certain direction in order to then have the media report it that way. So you think of human rights... Watch and this very incestuous relationship that they have with the State Department, with the organs of U.S. institutional power, this is something that has been brought up by many people. There was a letter that was signed by Chomsky and many others on the left condemning Human Rights Watch's very biased reporting about Venezuela going back at least 15 years and and uh, in, the, in the last decade or so. You see this over and over again, whether it's Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or any of these other NGOs, they have now also sort of become fair game for what, for, I guess you could call it a more indirect form of CIA and intelligence manipulation with the media.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, the, the, again, the CIA doesn't, it, it doesn't really need to do that much to get people to, um, to follow the script really. I mean, so much of, of, of building public support for policies or just not even so much that, but just shaping perceptions it's a formula that's been so successful over the years that it's just it, it really takes nothing more than a nudge to set in motion so obviously yeah <laughs> venezuela is a perfect example of that i mean it goes all the way back to guatemala and these are you know they're very uh, very well studied textbook examples of how to demonize a, a foreign leader or how to characterize and set in motion a script to describe a conflict or a dilemma and and build support for intervention, for example, or, or um, uh, you know, public support for uh, a certain policy. And it's, it's, uh, it's going on all the time still.
0: And to do it under the pretext of human rights, to do it under the pretext of humanitarianism, just like justifying war in Libya under humanitarian auspices. I mean, the kind of Orwellian doublethink required to, think, to, to, to even conceive of something like that is o- almost, you know, staggering it is so
1: it's Orwellian I think is the
0: term yeah no exactly right all right well we're pretty much out of time but I want to just give you one chance um, you know one chance and one chance only to leave people with um, what what would you want people to take out of the book they've closed up the book they're putting it on their shelves and they're kind of having that sort of contemplative moment where they think it over what is it that you want people to take out of this
1: well, I think that what people should take away from it is the fact that um, people are really afraid of the wrong things. People should really kind of question the views that they have. People should question what they're afraid of. And I think that they should start to, uh, to question what they read uh, on a regular basis. So it's hard to make that pitch to the Counterpunch audience, for example, because I think they're already probably there. But the, what I try to do, I think, is just open the door a little bit into the actual – gritty workings of how uh, how these stories are kind of uh, put out by the CIA. But most importantly, just what what isn't published, like what stories aren't actually being heard. And so people need to find reporters uh, that are independent. People need to find analysis that's independent, and they need to do everything they can to support that and to uh, to not let those voices be silenced, because so much of what we read, so much of what is put out there is uh, definitely the exact opposite of independent. And it's, uh, you know, a far cry from the myth of the aggressive fourth estate that uh, a lot of people would have you believe
0: indeed that's absolutely right okay uh, the book again spooked how the CIA manipulates the media and hoodwinks Hollywood by Nicholas Scow a great forward as well by David Talbot who is probably well known to a lot of people here as well his books of course uh, highlighting some of the same issues many other ones um, Nick thanks again for coming on the show and uh, listeners if you want to follow Nick's work you can obviously you can get the books on Amazon or wherever books are sold you can also follow him on Twitter at Nick Scow that's NIC C K S C H O U. And by the way, again, we didn't talk as much about it as I wanted to, but his other book, very important, Kill the Messenger, How the CIA's Crack Cocaine Controversy Destroyed Journalist Gary Webb. A critical story for all of us to know. Nick, thanks for your great work. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Eric. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Listeners, thank you as always. Speak to you again next week.